Welcome to the Ghostly Gallery Podcast, a place where we explore the world of horror in film, literature, and popular culture. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. My name is Bruce Markison. As always, I'm joined by my co-host and producer, Tracy Asteria. Tracy, we welcome you to the show. First off, let me ask you, Tracy, how was your Christmas holiday? How things go for you? It was really great. We had, oh my gosh, it was beautiful weather. It actually felt like summer here. So strange, but a great Christmas dinner with the turkey and my parents and my kids. And it, it was quiet, but it was really lovely. How was your Christmas with your family? Oh, it was very nice. Um, my wife's family uh, came over. We had probably, oh, about a dozen people on Christmas Eve and a few less than that on Christmas Day. Uh, I'm not going to tell you about all the presents that I got. Uh, as usual, <laughs> my wife and daughter very much spoiled me. I'm very lucky in that regard. But I did get some horror-related uh, items. Uh, in, in fact, some items that connect to some of our guests that we've had in our very first year of broadcasting this show. I uh, got two books that were written by uh, Mark DeWidziak. Uh, Mark was one of our early guests. He talked about his new biography, which is excellent, about Edgar Allan Poe. And in the past, he's written books about Dracula, about the phenomenon of Dracula and why it's so popular. So I was I was given that book, which is nice. And also, uh, I was given another book uh, that Mark wrote about Rod Serling. Rod uh, was somebody that Mark really idolized and uh, I think emulated uh, in a lot of ways and wrote a book about Serling in the in the Twilight Zone. So I was lucky enough to get those two books. Also, remember we had David Skull, the uh, great historian and author, and he told us about the new DVD project that he was involved with earlier this year. Uh, some of the films of the director, Todd Browning, including the very controversial movie from 1932, Freaks. So I got that DVD with David's commentary on it as well. I haven't listened to it yet, but uh, hope to in the next few days. So I did oh, get wow. a few a few items related to horror and related to our guests, which was really nice. Uh, anything like that for you? No, no, I wish. I wish my family thought about stuff like that, but they did not. Instead, I got some cozy blankets to keep me warm while I read my own books that I buy myself. <laughs> well, you come from a more normal family, right? That's definitely part of it. Very low so, key. <laughs> I did, uh, but I did, I did well. I got a lot of other great stuff too. In fact, I got a replica Dracula ring, uh, which my family thought was very bizarre that I asked for that. It's uh, modeled on the uh, ring that Bela Lugosi wore and that John Carradine wore. Uh, John Carradine played Dracula a couple of times for Universal Studios, so I got a replica ring, mm -hmm. which I started to wear on Monday afternoon, Christmas afternoon, and then my wife Sue said to me, um, you're not going to wear that all the time, are you? And I said, no, I'm just trying it out, saving it a fit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it only fits on my uh, my pinky finger. It's a little bit too small for the others, so I'm going to have to get in better shape, I guess, to wear it. Oh, but that's so cool! <laughs> yeah, it's really uh, it's really nice. Uh, it's a, it's a nice replica. It's you know seems like solid steel to me. It's gonna it's gonna take me a lot of effort to break it, so that's a good thing. So that was good another conversational uh, piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, We'll be talking about it more on future episodes, I'm sure. <laughs> and maybe I'll break it out next year. I'm, I'm thinking about dressing up as Dracula for Halloween 2024. So maybe I'll break out the ring uh, for that. Well, for oh, this week's awesome. program, um, this is our last of 2023 uh, as we get ready for a new year coming very shortly. Uh, no guest for this week's show, which is number 22 total for us. Instead, it'll just be the two of us, myself and Tracy. We're going to be tackling a variety of themes in what we're going to call a medley of the macabre. And we're going to start out, Tracy, by each of us talking about our favorite horror and sci-fi films of the year. 
So I've picked three, you've picked three, and we'll do them in order of, um, I don't want to say least favorite because we liked all the <laughs> movies that we chose, but we're going to go number three, then number two, and then our number one favorite overall. So we'll kind of go in that reverse order. Now, one thing to keep in mind for me, uh, I haven't seen certainly close to all the horror films that came out this year. There were many I did not see. Uh, two films that really drew rave reviews in, in recent months were Thanksgiving, the Eli Roth movie, and uh, the Godzilla film, Godzilla Minus One. Both have gotten tremendous reviews, not only from the media, but from fans. Uh, so I didn't see either one of them, and that's why I have not included them. Uh, I do hope to see them in the coming weeks, and, and when that happens, we can talk about it at that time. But of the mm -hmm. films that I did see this year in 2023, so here are my three favorite in reverse order. Uh, checking in at number three, uh, it's a movie that has not received a lot of publicity. I, in fact, only saw it within the last month, but it's very good. It's a creepy film called Cobweb. Cobweb centers on an eight-year-old boy. His name is Peter. Very quiet, pretty well-behaved, but unfortunately, he is facing difficulties everywhere in his life. At school, he is bullied. And then at home, he is abused mentally by two overly strict and sometimes unsympathetic parents, two kind of strange characters. And to make matters worse, someone or something is residing behind the walls of this young boy's bedroom, whispering words of encouragement that might not always represent the best of advice. Now, a young British actor named Woody Norman uh, plays Peter. Uh, he's really good. He has no problem tackling an American accent, even though he's, he's still very young. And he does a nice job of conveying the confusion and the frustration that comes when Really, only your substitute teacher is showing any true interest in helping you out. Uh, Lizzie Kaplan, excellent actress who starred in the Castle Rock TV series, which we're going to talk about a bit later on, is also quite good. She plays Peter's mother. At times, her character is very well-meaning, but she also lacks much common sense and really seems more interested in keeping secrets about her family than legitimately trying to help her son out. One of the strengths of this movie is director Samuel Bowden's handling of the, the monster, which I put in quotes, who may or may not be human, and whom he wisely keeps hidden for most of the film. So that does lend to some mystery here. Then when he does reveal this monster to us, he does so somewhat gradually before giving us a couple of close-ups near the end of the film, and I thought that was all really effectively done. I really had only one criticism, Tracy, of the film, and that was the conclusion, which is kind of ambiguous and in what's becoming a trend in horror, a little bit annoyingly so. Um, this is something we're seeing more and more in contemporary horror, and it's as if directors are scared to give us a definite ending because they hope maybe that a sequel is coming. Maybe they want to leave that door open or mm -hmm. maybe they just want to kind of play tricks on us. I suppose it's understandable to have a conclusion like that, especially if there is a possibility of a sequel down the road. But it can be frustrating for impatient horror fans. And I'm certainly uh, in that category. Uh, so that's the one shortcoming, but that's relatively small criticism. Otherwise, this is a really good movie, and it's one that I gave uh, three stars to. Cobweb, starring Woody Norman and Lizzie Kaplan. Uh, at number two on my list is a film, Tracy, that we talked about earlier this year. And it's, it's a film that I, I don't want to go too much in depth on it now because we did talk about it before, but it's The Last Voyage of the Demeter. We talked about this during our vampire special, which was episode uh, number 10. Again, I don't want to repeat all the review, but this was really, I thought, a worthy production. Uh, gives us a version of Dracula that's somewhat reminiscent of the character of Count Orlock from the Nosferatu films, 1923 and 1979. 
The film traces the voyage of the ship, the Demeter, which brings uh, Dracula to Whitby. Uh, Dracula is a stowaway on the ship. He uses the crew members basically to feed himself, to sustain himself throughout the journey. Uh, Corey Hawkins is the lead. He's excellent as the heroic character named Clemens, a black man who fights racism throughout the movie before finally having to fight Dracula himself. Uh, also good performances come from Liam Cunningham. He plays both the narrator and the captain of the Demeter, Captain Elliot. And uh, Eisling uh, Franciosa is a very good also as the stowaway. And really all the performances are good. To my surprise, and we did talk about this earlier uh, in that vampire special, the film turned into a box office flop. Hardly anybody went to see it. And it also drew some criticism, even from horror fans, for showing Dracula only in a beast-like form and not really fully formed as a human. And I understand that criticism. I think that's legitimate. Uh, clearly, though, the director wanted to do something different, creative with this character, uh, and, and I think he executed it pretty darn well. Uh, I thought the film was beautifully shot. It was well edited, well acted. Um, I know some people said they had trouble with a lot of the scenes being dark and at night. Um, that really wasn't a problem for me. I thought it was very atmospheric. The music was terrific, too. Um, I wonder sometimes when a film flops at the box office, if that leads to people piling on with negative criticism. Maybe that was the case here. I'm not so sure. But putting aside the lack of a good box office, this is really a fine film. I hope more people watch it on streaming services. It's a Dracula movie that deserves to be seen. Uh, three and a half stars for The Last Voyage of the Demeter. And then that brings me to my number one film uh, from horror in 2023, and this was a movie that I just watched in the last week, and it vaulted all the way to the top. Uh, I watched this on MGM+. Plus. It was based on a recommendation that I saw on Twitter, and I was not disappointed. The movie is Dark Harvest. Dark Harvest is set in 1963 in a very strange Midwestern town where every Halloween, a supernatural scarecrow-slash-skeleton character named Sawtooth Jack comes to life, merges from the cornfield. All of the underage boys who live in this town are then expected to take part in this Halloween run where they have to literally try to hunt down and kill Sawtooth Jack before he reaches the local church at midnight. And if one of the boys is able to do this, dangerous task to say the least, the town will then be expected to have a very good and prosperous season of crops. Again, 1963, this is a town uh, that's heavily reliant on farming. If none of the boys are able to do this, well, that's going to be a bad year for the town. So a lot of emphasis is put on this. A lot of pressure is put on the young boys to do this. Now, the boy who typically kills Sawtooth Jack earns a number of prizes, uh, his family is rewarded with a brand new house in a, the good section of town. The boy himself receives money and then a, a beautiful Corvette, which allows him to travel the country in style. Well, at least that's what the town leaders say will happen. They say that those are the rewards, but they're actually covering up a very dark and a very dangerous secret. That's one of the real twists to the movie here. Now, in Dark Harvest, the story centers on a young boy named Richie Shepard, whose brother Jim just won this Sawtooth Jack run the previous year. So his family, they're already in their new house. They have no need to participate in the 1963 run. So the parents of Richie, brother to Jim, they don't want him to get involved. They say, well, we've already got a great house. Why risk your life? There's no point in doing this. Um, but Ricky is a kid who's bullied by some of the other kids in town. And he's one of these younger brothers who kind of lives in his brother's shadow. Uh, his brother, Jim, is, is really considered, you know, the ideal teenager in many ways. He's a great athlete, 
everybody looks up to him. And, and Ricky really feels like, you know, he's kind of, he's in the shadows. He's just not getting any recognition for what he can do. He's basically relying on being, you know, brother to Jim. He wants to prove to everyone that he is just as good as his brother and that he can win this, uh, this sawtooth Jack run. Um, it's pretty wild, as you can tell, uh, but it's, it's a very creative story, and there's lots of unexpected twists. I think the makeup and the special effects are really good, really well done. And the director, Tracy, is someone you're familiar with. It's David Slade, who did 30 Days of Night, a movie that you like, I like as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Slade does a wonderful job of recreating small-town America in the early 60s. From the fashions to the architecture to the manner of speaking, uh, he, I think he replicates it all very well. There's a lot of atmosphere here in this film. It's really a throwback horror film. It's done in an old-fashioned but effective way. And even though it's set in the 60s, it's a little bit reminiscent of the style of some 1980s horror movies. That's kind of what it reminded me of. Uh, but I really liked it. I thought it was excellent. Three and a half stars I give it. Dark Harvest, my favorite film of 2023. So those are my three favorites. Uh, coming wow. in at number three again is Cobweb. Number two, The Last Voyage of the Demeter. And at number one, a bit of a sleeper, Dark Harvest. So those are my choices. Tracy, let's hear from you. Tell us about your three picks. Oh, my goodness. First of all, I want to say those are excellent choices. Two out of the three I need to put on my watch list for sure. So I, I will be doing that over the holiday. <laughs> so I'm just going to let you know that I approach my movie choices just a little bit differently. It's been such a busy year for me, and I haven't had a lot of time to explore the movies I kind of really wanted to see. So to prepare for tonight, I watched three movies that have been on my watch list for quite some time. So the first one that I'm going to put on my list is The Exorcist Believer. And I'll start out by saying that I'm not overly big into prequels or sequels or remakes or anything like that. So when I watch one, I kind of think of it as like a standalone new movie. That way I don't get disappointed or think about something that may or may not have been mentioned or, you know, they didn't get quite right. But I still have certain expectations, especially when it's from a movie such as The Exorcist. So this was actually number one on my to-do watch list, and I had huge expectations for it. So this the sequels from The Exorcist series, they were okay. And again, I've always counted them as like a standalone movie with the essence of the original storyline. So The Exorcist Believer, it was released just on October the 6th of this year, and it centers around two girls, a girl named Angela, who's played by Lydia Jewett, and a little girl named Catherine, played by Olivia O'Neill. And they're both newcomers to the industry. So they did a, a really great job with their first performances. So anyway, these two girls go for a walk in the woods after school to perform a ritual to contact Angela's deceased mother. Something happens and they go missing only to return about three days later with no memory at all of what had happened to them when they were out in the woods. But after some observation, the little girls started to show some disturbing behavior. And, you know, after some time, Angela's father, Victor, who's played by Leslie Odom, tracks down Chris McNeil, who is reprised by Ellen Bernstein, to get her insight onto what's going on based on her experiences with her daughter, Reagan, who was possessed by evil in the original Exorcist movie. So you have the typical factors associated with the exorcism, a few jump scares that leave you shaking your head a little bit. The characters overall, oh, I hate to say it, but I kind of found them a bit annoying, <laughs> um, especially with the parents of the girl, Catherine. Um, 
I thought it was really interesting that they brought Ellen Bernstein back to reprise her role, even if it was just for a few minutes. But what I found more intriguing is they brought, and I don't want to spoil it, but I'm going to spoil it. They brought Linda Blair back for like two milliseconds at the end of the film. Um, I'm not sure quite why they did that, if it was just maybe um, to lure in viewers, it was just a small cameo appearance. Hmm. Um, I did a little bit of research on it just because I'm just so intrigued by this franchise that in 2025, they're actually going to be releasing another sequel follow-up to this movie um, based on Angela's possession relapse called The Exorcist, The Deceiver. And in a couple more years' time, they're going to follow up with a third movie, not yet titled, to complete to complete this series. So I'm likely going to watch them both as they become available with the hopes that the stories improve. But for this movie, I'm, I hate to do it, but I'm going to only rate it at one and a half stars. But if you're an Exorcist fan, you definitely need to watch it just for the heck of it. Um, I definitely wouldn't have spent theater dollars on seeing it, though. But um, it was an okay movie. And, you know, in my heart of hearts, I, I love The Exorcist. So I, I had to put this one on my list. So that is my number three. All right. Before you get to number um, two, I got to <laughs> grill you because I haven't seen the movie. Okay. I know it's gotten some some negative reviews, but it is interesting mm -hmm. that uh, Ellen Burstyn is back in the film, I guess not for very long, maybe 10, 12 minutes, something like that. How mm -hmm. does she look? How does she perform? She's, I think, in her 90s. Tell us about that. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, I, w I was just, I think I was so blown away by seeing her. I was like, oh, my gosh. She did a really great job. You could you could tell her age. Um I really wish that they would have brought her in for a little longer than that short period of time. I think she would have she would have added so much more to this movie. And I really I think, you know, in hindsight, maybe the writers might have regretted not leaving her in for a lot longer. Yeah. Um I don't want to give it away, Bruce, but there's like one scene where she's attacked by one of the girls and something happens. And I was just kind of like, my heart was kind of torn open. They didn't kill her off, but they kind of maimed her yeah. somewhat. Mm. Um, but she did an excellent job. And I was really happy to see her make an appearance. Linda Blair's appearance at the end, though, was rather confusing. But, uh, yeah, but yeah. I didn't know that Linda Blair was going to be in this at all. I don't know if she actually meant to be in it or if that was like a second thought by mm. by the writers, but she was in it for just like two seconds at the very end. Yeah. And I think that was the surprise that they were trying to allude to during kind of like trailers and just kind of reviewers talking about this movie before it was released. You know, she's always kept kind of a an arm's distance away from the movie. She doesn't really like to do interviews talking about The Exorcist, doesn't like talking about the experience. And I understand some of that because I know that after the movie came out, and actually the night we're recording this, this is the 50th anniversary of the original Exorcist from 1973. But in the months after the movie came out, uh, she apparently got some death threats. She had to have bodyguards. Uh, there were a lot of people upset about the theme of the film involving demons and the devil and exorcism. And, and maybe that's why. Um, that's why I'm surprised, though, that that she appears in this at all. I, I didn't think she would have mm -hmm. anything to do with that. So that's that's kind of fascinating. One final question on this one, Tracy. In the original movie, Ellen Burstyn uh, Playing the mother, Chris McNeil is very heroic. She's got a lot thrust at her, and she, you know, handles it about as well as can be. She's obviously, you know, extremely concerned about her daughter's condition, situation. Very heroic character. Do we get any sense of that heroic nature from Chris McNeil in this one? Um, a, a little bit, because one of the reasons why 
the father makes contact with her character is because she she writes a book about her experience with the possession and her daughter. So I feel that she still has that heroic attitude. But at the same time, you can see you can feel the sadness behind her character at the same time, because you learn that the relationship with her and her daughter has diminished and she hadn't seen her daughter in so many years. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why Linda Blair makes an appearance at the very end, just for like that very brief moment, just kind of to wrap things up to say that they kind of rekindled their, their relationship again. All right. That's a great summary for that one. So that was your your number three film to talk about. What is number mm-hmm. two on your list, Tracy? So I have been seeing this trailer play on and off for quite a long period of time. It's called There's Something Wrong with the Children. So this movie was released back on January 17th. And I think think it was released only on MGM plus. I don't think it was released in the theaters at all. I think it's like straight, straight to streaming. So, you know, the trailer looked really creepy and it starred Zach Guilford and he is of midnight mass and other Mike Flanagan productions fame. So that's what, what really prompted me to want to see this movie. So this movie centers around a group of people who go away for the weekend to resolve some personal issues. So Ben and Margaret, who's played by Zach Guilford and Alicia Wainwright, and Ellie and Thomas, played by Amanda Crew and Carla Santos, along with their children, Lucy and Spencer, quote unquote, the creepy children, <laughs> played by Briella Guza and David Maddie. So they're having a really great time. They're camping, they're exploring, and they go and they find some old ruins. So they go through this entrance and they start exploring some caverns. And for me, as a mom, what's a little bit weird is they let the kids go off to explore on their own. The kids are only like maybe 8 and 11 years old. So they go off and they discover this. I, it's like a well, I guess. Mm-hmm. And they become entranced by what they refer to as the shine. So right there at that moment in time, it looks like they're going to fall in only to be rescued by their parents. So later on, the story takes a little twist and the children stay in the cabin with the family friends, Ben and Margaret, and they happen to disappear in the early morning hours. So Zach Guilford's character, Ben, tries to find them. He goes back to the ruins and he sees the children at the mouth of the well, staring down into it, kind of like hypnotized. It's really creepy. The children look over their shoulders at him and then they just kind of like dive in. Ben is distraught with everything that he just witnessed. And it's only amplified by his struggle with mental illness. He walks by, he walks back to the cabin. He quickly discovers that like, oh man, the children are there, (laughs) leaving him to kind of question what he just saw. So throughout the next few scenes, there's, you know, indication that there's really something seriously wrong with these kids. And not to give it all away, but it's really more of a psychological thriller too. There's blood, gore, you know, there's like mythology, And there really is really great chemistry with the characters. The ending's not quite what I expected. Um, But, you know, throughout the entire movie, it really kept me on edge wondering, well, what's going to happen now? Um, I really, I really enjoyed it. I give the film like a, a solid two and a half stars for definitely keeping my attention. Could it have been better? Yeah, it could have been better. Um, they could have done a lot more, in my opinion, with this movie, um, add a little bit more to the storyline to give it a little bit more meat and potatoes rather than leaving the viewers kind of with a few lingering questions and asking maybe why and geez, what was that? Yeah. And, you know, like you were saying earlier, Bruce, in all honesty, if the writers chose to do so, they could make a follow-up movie. Um, just to go a bit further into the mythology, 
in backstory of what had happened. Um, I think that might have been the purpose. There's so much more that they could have done, but I thought it was a pretty decent movie. You know, I, I think you make an interesting point. It's all right for a director, a writer to leave some questions at the end of a, a horror movie. You don't have to answer everything for us. Leaving us with mm-hmm. questions. You know, Alfred Hitchcock did that with The End of the Birds because that ending was a little bit uh, ambiguous in terms of what was causing the birds to act out and start attacking people spontaneously without any reason at all. But when you leave so many unanswered questions, that that can get a little bit frustrating. Now, I, I happen to see this movie as well, and I, I thought it was pretty good. I, I pretty much agree with your assessment of it. I thought it was really interesting after, you know, Zach Guilford sees these, you know, these two kids, you know, basically dive into the well, which, you know, goes seemingly thousands of feet down. Mm-hmm. He thinks they're dead. Then he sees them. So it, probably at first he's thinking, you know, um, oh, I'm, I'm seeing uh, I'm seeing illusions here. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing things, uh, hallucinations, things that are not there. But then the behavior of the kids indicates that, uh, well, yeah, maybe I did see them before, but they've been changed somehow. Um, I I thought that was pretty effective. Guilford's a good actor. He did a great job in Midnight Mass, and he's he's really good here as well. So I thought that that part of it uh, was interesting. Um, I thought also maybe they could have developed a little bit more of the difficulties uh, between uh, the members of the two couples, you know, mm-hmm. you got the one couple where they've been kind of cheating on each other. It almost sounds like a weird open marriage. And then you've got Guilford and his wife, and they're kind of debating about whether they want to have kids. And probably after the way they see the other kids acting, they probably don't want to do that. But they're <laughs> debating that throughout. I, they do touch upon that a little bit. I thought they could have gone a little more in depth. Uh, in in maybe uh, setting up the first half of the film and then uh, building to a conclusion. But uh, uh, it is an interesting film. It it does leave, again, too many unanswered questions for me. And it's it's one of those movies that makes you think, well, you know, maybe there will be a follow-up, a sequel of some kind. Exactly. And it just, one part that I found was like really strange about it is, you know, when the father of the child, Spencer, you know, called to report a murder. Um, the the police were very nonchalant and said, oh, yeah, we'll be there in a few hours. Yeah. <laughs> Just it, it was it was kind of a little little strange. I thought they could have changed that a little bit. Yeah. Um, it was that that piece was different. But, you know, if there was another part to maybe explain a little bit more. I would definitely, you know, I would definitely watch it for sure. All right. Very good. So that was number two on your list. uh, list. There's something wrong with the children. And what's the number one film you wanted to talk about from this year? So I chose Pet Cemetery Bloodlines. Mm. This movie was released not that long ago, back on September the 23rd, and it premiered on Paramount on October the 6th. So I I really enjoy Stephen King, and this was a movie I really wanted to see. So I just watched it for the first time the other night. This this movie it's a prequel to the Pet Cemetery storyline. It features young and upcoming actors. So you have um, Jackson White as Judd Crandall. You have Forrest Goodluck as Manny Rivers. Jack Mulhern as Timmy Baderman and Isabella LeBlanc as Donna Rivers. And believe it or not, this film also has a few really great veteran actors. You have Henry Thomas, David Duchovny, and Pam Greer. Wow. So I thought that was an interesting combination. Um, this movie takes place in 1969. It surrounds the main character, Judd Crandall. He's getting, to re- he's getting ready to leave the small town of Ludlow to go join the Peace Corps with his girlfriend. It comes with great encouragement from his father, who's played by Henry Thomas, to leave the town of Ludlow forever. Um, 
I kind of at the beginning, there's an unfortunate incident that happens and prevents the pair from leaving town. It's it's a dog attack and it's kind of a vicious dog attack. And this incident introduces the character of Timmy. And Timmy is Judd's best friend who just returned from Vietnam. And he appears to be suffering from an extreme case of PTSD. So it's determined that there's something that's not quite right in the town. There's a group of elders that get together and they talk about the horrific past of the town and they feel that there's something starting to, to happen again. So later on, we find out what's really wrong with Timmy and what has happened to him. So his father, who's played by David Duchovny, he is actually shown in the pet cemetery with a shovel which provides insight into what he's actually done. Basically, with this movie, we learn the history of the town. We learn about the secrets of the pet cemetery and what that all holds. We see the typical storyline where the characters are killed off in kind of like a cat and mouse situation. But eventually, you know, it ends up, leaving you to go back to the original Pet Cemetery movie, not the remake, but the original, mm -hmm. you know, to try to pick up the story, you know, years later. So, you know, it was an interesting movie. Um, all in all, I kind of got the feeling it was like a low budget movie. The performances by the cast were really, really good, you know, given that each one of these young actors might have only had maybe three roles in their entire career. Um, the veteran actors performed really well. Um, I feel that, you know, the veterans kind of gave the movie a little bit of clout right. and recognition for the moviegoers. Being a Stephen King, inspired storyline um i kind of expected a bit more and i think i just had grandiose expectations because i was so excited to see it but you know i would still give it a three out of five i still think it was a great story and i would recommend people go watch it and I did read somewhere that the director, I believe it's the director of this movie, is thinking about coming out with another movie at some point, and I would definitely watch it. All right. Very interesting. Uh, the character you mentioned, Judd Crandall, that's the one character mm -hmm. that we're familiar with from the original movie from the 1980s and the remake that came out, I think it was 2019 or 2020. And that was a mm -hmm. character who was played by Fred Gwynn in the first film and then by John Lithgow in the second movie. So that's the character we're dealing with, but he's a lot younger here. Obviously, it's not mid-80s anymore. It's 1969, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. And that's what I found really fascinating. I was like, oh, man, so it really does go way, way back. So I really... I like that they did that. That was that was important to kind of bring back yeah. to the bare roots of the story. Fred Gwynn in particular was was outstanding in that role. Uh, I mean, I like John Lithgow too, but Gwynn to me, he just nailed that part as as the, the you know the guy living across the street from the the new family that's moved in, and he's the one who gives the father the information about the local pet cemetery and some of the legends behind it. Uh, so it's mm -hmm. it's kind of interesting that um, we we get to see his storyline develop. And I'm with you, too. You know, a movie that has Henry Thomas, David Duchovny, Pam Greer. That's really interesting to me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like if this movie had its creepy aspects to it, um, you know, in, you know, the typical Stephen King fashion, um, I, I would definitely recommend people to go see it. And, you know, for me, for me, like I've said before, I do like to go back and rewatch things that interest me. Yeah. So this would be one that I would go back and rewatch to see what I missed that first time and kind of put those pieces together. Well, this is one I have not seen, but I definitely want to see it now. Pet Cemetery Bloodlines, <laughs> and it's available on the Paramount Network. So that comes in. Uh, first on your list, second was There's Something Wrong with the Children, and third, The Exorcist Believer.
That's right. And there's two other little movies that I did watch within the last few weeks that I just want to kind of give honorable mentions to. Sure. Um, I don't know if you've seen it yet, but it's called Knock at the Cabin. It's an M. Night Shyamalan production starring David Bautista. It's an apocalyptic thriller, not so much horror. Yeah. Um, it's worth your time to watch it if you haven't. And I would give that one a two and a half stars at least. Very, it keeps your attention. It's very intriguing. And the other one is just a brand new release. It's the movie called Leave the World Behind. I believe it's on Netflix with Julia Robertson and Ethan Hawke. It's another apocalyptic thriller. Um, I'd give it about two stars, but I'd recommend watching. Okay. It was produced by the Obamas and stirred up quite a buzz on social media channels, TikTok in particular. It leaves a lot to the imagination in your own interpretation. And I feel there could be a lot more to that storyline, but maybe that was the point for this movie. But those two movies, they were just released in 2023. And I would say, you know, pick up a box of popcorn and put your feet up and watch both those movies too. M. Night Shyamalan, I'm a fan of his. I know he gets some criticism. He's, you know, he's never really been able to match what he did with the the Sixth Sense back in the late mm-hmm. 1990s, which great films, hard to match that. But he's done, he's done some other really good films. Um, uh, he did one, uh, what was it called, Signs? Um, yes, um, with uh, Mel Gibson and um, Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, pretty young jo- Joaquin Phoenix at that point in his career. Uh, that's really good. Uh, the Village is excellent. I saw that in the theater. I thought that mm-hmm. was a, a very, very fine film. So uh, to me, he's much more than this one hit wonder that some people try to categorize him as. I don't think it's fair. I think yeah. he's uh, I think he's a lot more than that. And I think any film that he makes is usually kind of an interesting message uh, with it. There's some depth. There's some creativity there. Um, the other movie I'm really not familiar with at all Um Although I know you did tell me about it in uh, in an email. Uh, do you remember who the director is on that one? Oh, my gosh. I do not recall who the director is. I just I just recall that it was produced by Michelle and Barack Obama. So they provided the um, the funding uh, as as the producers. Mm-hmm. I'm going to look. Yeah. I'm going to look up the. Uh, the movie right now to see who the director is. Doing this in real time here, so we'll see what uh, <laughs> what I come up with. Uh, Sam Esmail, I believe, is how you say it. Not, okay, not familiar with him. Looks like a younger guy. Uh, so leave the world behind and a knock at the cabin. Two honorable mentions. Knock at the cabin. Yeah, yes. very good. Well, the last movie we talked about in depth at the top of your list was Pet Cemetery Bloodlines, which was set in Maine. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to another show set in Maine in a mythical town called Castle Rock. And I wanted to talk a little bit about this. It's it's not a, it's not a new show. It came out a few years ago, uh, but it's actually called Castle Rock. And it features the aforementioned Lizzie Kaplan, whom we talked about, uh, was on for two seasons on Hulu. Uh, produced by Stephen King, populated by characters uh, from several of his novels, uh, including the Shawshank Redemption, Misery, which is a great movie, Salem's Lot, which is, uh, you know, one of his best books, uh, and Misery's great book, too. And then, of course, The Shining. So we have, we have characters from all these King books, all of which have been made into films. And we have references to all these movies featured on the two seasons of Castle Rock. To me, the show, it started out very promisingly. Then it tapered off a little bit, especially during the first season. Didn't quite live up to its potential. Uh, And then I thought got a little bit better in the second season. But let's tackle the first season first. So the first season starts out in a really interesting way. We have this very creative suicide Involving the warden of the Shawshank prison, Dale Lacey, played by terrific character actor Terry O'Quinn. 
Then we're introduced to another interesting character, Henry Deaver. He is a death row lawyer who returns to his hometown of Castle Rock when a young man is found locked away in an abandoned part of the prison. And the young man basically uh, makes a call out to Henry Deaver, who I think is working in Texas. And then he has him come back to Castle Rock to help him out as he's facing legal problems. So we have a very promising start, first couple of episodes. Then the pace begins to slow down. And the story becomes a little bit confusing. There's frequent time jumps which occur, and that that always throws me off, um, especially when they don't always make it clear that they're going back in time. We have a central character played by Sissy Spacek, great actress from Carrie, um, and her character is involved in these time jumps. She's the mother of Henry Deaver, and the time jumps that she's involved with, that creates some confusion, too. Uh, some of these questions within the plot were answered by the end of the first season, but others remained uncertain. Uh, all in all, I thought the first season had its moments, but for me, it was just a little bit muddled. Now, you told me, Tracy, you had a chance to watch the first season. What did you think of it? So I was really excited that you shared with me this series. Um, it's from 2018, and I actually never heard of it before, ever. Um, the first couple of episodes, you know, were really promising with an eclectic group of cast members. Um, Bill Skarsgård, he was a really interesting choice for one of those roles. I think he played it really well. He was mysterious. He was moody. He was dark. And the storyline was a great idea. It had so much potential, Bruce. But honestly, it grew so chaotic for me um, with all the bouncing back and forth, like you mentioned, with the alternative reality times. I'm not so crazy about those kinds of twists and turns. Um, I have to be in kind of like the right frame of mind to watch them. So season one was not an easy watch, um, but I did enjoy it. I wasn't crazy about the ending of the first season. There were so many questions I have to be answered. Um, I don't think they'll ever be answered, actually. <laughs> but, you know, it it was an interesting ending. I, I feel like they probably could have put maybe five more episodes into the first season to kind of wrap things up, yeah. which, was, which was a shame. But I guess that's what your imagination is for. <laughs> right. Now, I... I don't think you saw the second season, right? I I've only on episode three. Okay. So far, so good. <laughs> All right. Not to give too much away, but Bill Skarsgård's character does come back toward the end of season two. I don't think he says any words, but he is he is somewhat of a central character. So they do answer some of that later on. Oh, good. <laughs> but it, it comes late in the second season. Um by which point you've almost forgot about what happened in the first season. That's kind of weird. The second season overall, I think Tracy was actually a little bit better. It's a completely different storyline at the beginning. And it's centered on the character of Annie Wilkes, the deranged character in the terrific book and film Misery. Uh, of course, Annie in the movie was played by Kathy Bates. Here, Annie is played by an excellent actress, Lizzie Kaplan. We talked about her earlier in the movie Cobweb, and she's really great. She and her daughter, Joy, they're on the run from the law, although we're not exactly sure at the beginning why they're on the run, what, what Lizzie's character of Annie has done. She's obviously done something wrong. So they travel from California, and they end up going to these two towns next to each other, Castle Rock and Jerusalem's Lot, or Salem's Lot, as it comes to be known. So Annie settles in in this uh, new part of the country, takes a job as a nurse. Uh, she herself, though, is battling against hallucinations. She has to take medications, which are like antipsychotic. And I guess if you're going to be a nurse, you can't really take these medications. Uh, so she has to do it kind of secretly and obtain the drugs illegally. Uh, so that adds to the complication. Clearly, at times, her character struggling with mental illness, these hallucinations, 
She also has a very bad temper. I mean, she can go from being, you know, very calm to, you know, wielding an axe seemingly in about five seconds. Um, at other times, she's really fighting for good causes. So there are times when you're really sympathetic with the plight of Annie Wilkes. Uh, times you love her and there are other times when, you know, you're just exasperated with what she's doing. Now, Annie's character is threatened by another important character here, Ace Merrill, and he is the son of a local town leader named Pop Merrill. Uh, so Annie uh, ends up killing Ace sort of in self-defense, although she goes a little bit far. She probably <laughs> could have defended herself in a more peaceful way, but that's another story. As it turns out, though, Ace doesn't really die. He's reincarnated as the man who was the lover of a witch in the early 1600s. And there are some flashback scenes here, but they make a lot more sense. So this whole situation leads to all sorts of problems for uh, Jerusalem's lot um, as we see people being reincarnated from you know, centuries earlier and basically taking over the town. Um, Lizzie Kaplan is great in this. Uh, Tim Robbins is also excellent. He's the biggest star that appears in this second season, and he plays Pop Merrill, the father to Ace. Pop is a man afflicted with cancer, also lots of guilt. He's done lots of bad things in his life, but he's trying to make up for them. You, you get the sense he knows the end is coming. He wants to redeem himself. And he really is the one who tries to save the town. And he's excellent in this role. And so is Paul Sparks, uh, who plays his son, Ace. Um, all in all, I thought the second season was very good. It was certainly an improvement on the first season. It was much easier to follow. The pacing was better. And I thought it was well written. Um, it ended on a, on a pretty strong note. Would have loved to have seen a third season, perhaps incorporating other novels, maybe like the aforementioned Pet Cemetery, uh, but Hulu ended up canceling the series after season two. So we didn't get to see any more episodes of Castle Rock. Um, so it, it was a promising show. It had its moments. Season two was better than season one. Uh, something, though, that maybe some streaming service might try to revisit uh, if they can get Stephen King behind the project. So that's oh, Castle Rock, which we wanted to talk about. And then there's one other show that we wanted to delve into as well. And I think we've hinted at this in earlier episodes, Tracy, that we really wanted to go more in depth on the FX series called The Strain. And you were the one who let me know about this. It ran for four years, 2014 to 2017, on the FX network. It featured a total of 46 episodes. Now, for those who aren't familiar, the show focuses on a team of CDC investigators who respond to this horrific incident in which a plane has landed safely, but somehow all of the passengers are dead. The CDC team soon discovers that a viral outbreak has occurred, apparently stemming from an ancient strain of vampirism. So just a couple of episodes into the strain, after you'd given me the recommendation, I was hooked. I mean, right from the start, I realized this is great. Tracy knows what she's talking about. It's extremely well done from the acting to the fast pace, first rate makeup, special effects. Uh, I thought it was terrific. Now, I guess you watched it when it was during its original run, right, on FX? No, oh, I actually... I didn't. I picked it up a, a couple of years ago. Okay. Um, so I was I was first exposed to this storyline when I read the three books by Guillermo del Toro and Chuck Hogan. The the books were called The Strain, The Fall, and Night Eternal. So I started with the books. I had no idea that series actually existed until I started researching to see if there were more books, and I came across the series. So I started watching it, and right from episode one, I was totally hooked on that. It, excellent storyline. It was honestly, with the exception of Stargate, uh, um, this this series is like my number two go-to. Loved it so much. Mm. Let's talk about some of the actors, um, and all of them were good. Uh, you had Corey Stoll was in the lead role of Dr. Ephraim Goodweather. 
Uh, he's a guy, he's plagued by lots of personal problems. He's divorced. Uh, but he's also one of the few people in power who seems to have any sense of how to deal with the growing contagion. You know, everyone else is sort of downplaying things and he knows, yeah, this is not good. That's right. Oh my gosh, he was excellent. I had I've never seen his work before, but um I'm definitely on the look for any other films or TV shows that he's been in. I I thought his character, he played it so excellent because you have empathy for him for everything that he's been going through. He might not have been so super likable at the beginning, but he definitely grows on you. One of the things people had fun with when the show was on uh, FX originally in some of the, you know, the chat rooms and the, uh, you know, places on IMDb where you can make comments. A lot of people made a big deal about the fact that he he wore this hairpiece in the early episodes and then he ends up shaving his head because he has to go kind of undercover. Um, and in, in real life, I guess he is actually bald. Um, I did not know yeah. that. <laughs> and I didn't think the hairpiece was that bad, but apparently it was obvious to a lot of people that that's not his natural hair. Uh, I didn't realize that until I read some of these comments. <laughs> I, I thought he looked OK with a hairpiece, but then, he, you know, I, I think it was late in the first season or maybe early second season that he ends up shaving his head and takes on his more more natural look. Uh, oh there was goodness. Argentine actress uh, Mia Maestro. She's very good as uh, Dr. Nora Martinez, and she becomes Ephraim's partner after his divorce. Uh, I'll tell you, the guy is probably my favorite actor in this show, and he's done a lot of other great stuff, is Kevin Durand. Uh, doesn't mm -hmm. appear much in the first few episodes, but then becomes very integral and heroic. Uh, he's um, a native New Yorker. Uh, he's uh, an exterminator, and he's an expert on the history of New York, about the architecture and how things have changed. And he's a bit of a wise guy in, in terms of the way he speaks to other people, but he does become this heroic character um, and um, sort of the um, uh, he's sort of the muscle behind the team of people that are you know trying to lead the survival effort. But I thought he was great. I loved him in that. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. He provides so much comic relief. Yes. You know, at those difficult times. And, you know, he like you said, he's he's done so many interesting roles he was he's actually had a role on stargate in a in an episode and he did he just a very good strong actor uh, he he did so well with this series yeah he was very funny you know a lot of times he'll say kind of inappropriate <laughs> blunt things but that's just the kind of the way that he is um and as an actor he's so versatile he can play uh, good guys sympathetic guys evil people i mean he can he can run the whole gamut and then one other guy i wanted to mention who also is terrific in this he's a german actor named richard samuel and he plays this nazi turned vampire thomas eichhorst and he is just so so completely evil i mean but when he's in a scene you can't take your eyes off him Absolutely. As as creepy and as, you know, much as you wanted to hate that character, he did excellent. He was amazing. Like, I really kind of grew attached to that character. Yeah. <laughs> he did an amazing job. I, again, I've never seen him in anything before. And, you know, I think the writers, directors, they when they chose him for that role, yeah. they they were epic with him. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they, they trace his story back in flashbacks, and he was somewhat sympathetic as, as a younger man, but then you kind of see his trajectory. He becomes hooked into the Nazi party, and then he becomes essentially one of these these vampires, and, uh, you know, things just go from there. Um, but uh, I thought Samuel and, and Kevin Duran were both about as good as anybody in this in this show. Uh, so I'm really glad you told me about it. It's an, it's an intermingled plot of virus, vampires, other subplots surrounding the main storyline. And I, I really can say without question in my mind, The Strain is one of the better horror TV series that I've seen over the last 10 to 15 years. So, Oh, absolutely. I'm so glad you liked it. <laughs> yeah, no, it was great. 
Really good. And uh, we're still hoping at some point to get someone on either from the cast or one of the writers, uh, one of our goals for 2000 and 2024. Well, Trace Hughes, we get set to wrap up uh, this season-ending show of the Ghostly Gallery podcast. I wanted to do kind of a, a quick overview uh, of what we've uh, been able to accomplish 22 episodes in. Uh, the first episode that we did was back in mid-June. It was, it was just like this one. It was me and you, kind of an introductory program to talk about some of the things we hope to accomplish with this podcast. And then in terms of our first guest, it was Harrison Smith, uh, always outspoken, a highly intelligent director. He gave us an in-depth assessment of his films and his love of horror. So he was he was the first guest. We're certainly hoping to have him on again. Uh, he's one of two directors that we've had on as guests, the other being uh, Ansel Farage. Uh, Ansel has been on with us twice. Uh, we've had several authors. We've had Mark Dewidziak. We talked about him earlier in the show. Jeff Thompson, the Dark Shadows expert. Uh, Michael McGovern, vampire novelist. Uh, Frank Dello Strito, uh, who is a prolific author and historian. Uh, we had Mark Olshaker on to um, uh, talk about um, the show about the FBI. Also talk about his relationship with uh, Rod Serling. Uh, another author he had on was Donna Marie Novak, uh, talking about uh, made-for-TV films from the 70s. And also the expert on Christmas monsters, Jeff Belanger, uh, has uh, been one of our authors that we've had as guests. Uh, we've had three actors on, Josh Hitchens, who's done a couple of programs with us. He's a stage actor and historian. Uh, Michael Dante, great gentleman from Southern California, who uh, starred in uh, Willard, among other movies. And we also had Naomi Grossman on from 1BR, the 2019 movie. And from that movie, the producer of that uh, film, uh, Alok Mishra, joined us as well. I think that was our wildest show, Tracy, when we had Naomi and Alok. We, uh, we had trouble reining them in. They just uh, <laughs> they said whatever was on their mind, which was good. <laughs> Absolutely. That was a blast. That was a blast. And, you know, when when we were recording that episode, just so the listeners know, we actually we were able to see them as we were chatting. And my goodness, it was priceless. That was so enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Uh, we've also had a few historians on uh, Tucker Christine, who's an expert on Dracula and collects a lot of Dracula-related uh, memorabilia. We're hoping to have him on again. Uh, he does a, uh, a magazine um, that is about Bram Stoker's uh, Dracula. It's actually called Beyond Stoker. And uh, we're hoping to have him on maybe in February uh, when his next issue comes out. Uh, we had the man known as Toothpickings on, Brian Forrest, an expert on the Blackula films. Uh, and then we also had our friend from the Rosenbach Museum, Edward G. Pettit, talking about uh, some of the classical horror like Dracula and uh, Frankenstein. Uh, so those have been uh, the guests that we have had along the way, uh, 19 in total, lots of memorable moments. And, and I can honestly say, you know, you know, I found value in every one of them. Uh, every one of them taught me something. Every one of them gave me insights that I didn't know about. Uh, in some cases, they confirmed beliefs that I had. And in other mm -hmm. cases, they smashed down some urban legends. And uh, we've been really lucky to have some some terrific guests uh, along the way. And I know you've had a lot of fun with these these folks as well, too, Tracy. Oh, my gosh, absolutely. I can't begin to tell you how much I've learned over the course of these episodes that we've we've recorded and all of the different people that we've chatted with. Um, my, my watch list has grown immensely with all the different movies and my reading list has just skyrocketed of all the books I need to read. But yeah, definitely so many memorable moments. And, you know, I definitely want to encourage the listeners to, you know, go back and explore some of our our podcasts and follow our guests on the various social media accounts and keep up with what they're doing because their careers are just skyrocketing everywhere. 
Also want to let folks know about our YouTube channel, which Tracy has just started as of, well, less than two weeks ago. Uh, mm -hmm. We've had uh, three of our programs put up already. Uh, one was our second program with the director, uh, Ansel Farage. We also had our second uh, program with um, Josh Hitchens talking about his favorite Christmas horror films. And a recent episode with Jeff Belanger talking about his new book, The Fright Before Christmas. So those three are on YouTube and you'll be adding more in the coming weeks. Uh, we're, we're getting some nice traction, some nice feedback there. And, and I certainly appreciate your efforts uh, in that well, area. Thank you. So we thank you, Tracy, for that. No, it's been it's been exciting. And I'm so happy that we're able to kind of, you know, we're not replacing what we're currently doing, but just opening up the Ghostly Gallery podcast to a different set of viewers over on YouTube. And, you know, so far, so good. You know, it's been very promising. Yeah, we're still on Podbean, Spotify, Samsung, um, trying to think of some of the others. You can probably feel oh, I heart, I heart Radio. I heart radio. Um, yep. Yeah. Um, you can find it on Google and I believe it, you can probably even search it out on Apple as well. It, it's it's pretty much everywhere. You just Google the Ghostly Gallery podcast and all kinds of things come up on your Google search page. And eventually all the shows will make it over to YouTube as well. So we're excited about that. Uh, mm -hmm. Tracy, I want to thank you not only for uh, co-hosting the show tonight, but doing all the great work you've done as co-host and producer uh, for this. We would not be able to air any of these shows without your technical brilliance, uh, which <laughs> far, far exceeds mine. It wouldn't take much to exceed mine, but you, 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 you know what you're doing, and this enables us to be on the air on a weekly basis, and I really do appreciate it. I mean, it's, uh, it's invaluable to us, so thank you for that. Oh, it's been, it's so fun. It's so fun. And I teach myself new things all the time. So yeah, it's a learning experience for sure. And I appreciate, you know, I appreciate all of this. It's so cool and so interesting. Well, for Tracy Asteria, uh, my name is Bruce Markison. We both want to thank you for listening into this show and maybe listening to the other 21 episodes. We've done 22 in total during our inaugural year of 2023. Uh, we, uh, we thank everybody uh, for joining us, for being part of this Museum of the Macabre, as I like to call it. And we do hope to see you in 2024 right here in the Ghostly Gallery. <laughs>